This morning, I want to look at Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1. We're going to look at nine verses here. And the wrath of God is the theme that permeates this passage. The wrath of God. Let's be honest. The subject of God's wrath is not an easy one to hear or to teach. There are, I suppose, preachers here and there who revel in this subject as if it were a delight to them, and they seem to feel right at home amongst the fire and brimstone. I'm not one of those. In fact, I think there's something wrong with people like that. Uh, But of all the topics and all the doctrines in Scripture from really beginning to end, there is nothing more difficult for our hearts and minds to look at without flinching than this subject, the wrath of God, and yet you can't read the Scriptures or listen to the teaching of Christ and honestly get the impression that it would be okay for preachers to shy away from declaring the doctrine of divine wrath or to to downplay the horrors or even simply ignore this subject while we preach all on positive themes instead. We don't have divine sanction to do that. And the fact is, Scripture uses the most terrifying imagery and the most extreme terminology to describe the wrath of God against sin, and it does it for a purpose. There's frankly no way you could ever exaggerate what Scripture says about the wrath of God, because whenever the Bible describes the outpouring of God's wrath in judgment, it uses infinite expressions, and it uses the most gruesome imagery you could ever concoct fire that's not quenched, and worms that don't die, and the smoke of torment that ascends forever and ever. All of those are biblical expressions. And and the truth is, every mention of hell in Scripture, every description of hell that's given to us, is dreadful in the extreme. And so naturally, we don't like to think of it. We don't like to hear about it. And many preachers these days flatly refuse to address it without, you know, doing their best to try to soften it. And frankly, most congregations of stylish evangelicals won't stand even to hear a softened message that mentions the wrath of God. And I get that. It's not a a pleasant subject. I remember reading Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in my ninth grade English class in a secular school. It was assigned reading because it is one of the great articles of literary genius in American history. And so I read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards maybe two or three years before I really came to understand the gospel. And when I read it, I thought Edwards was painting a ridiculous caricature because I grew up in a liberal church and, and preaching about God's anger against the depth of human depravity was simply not something we ever heard. It was utterly foreign to everything I'd ever heard about God. It was also contrary to what I had heard about the fundamental goodness of human nature. And so to my shame as a 14-year-old, my response to Jonathan Edwards' sermon was the opposite of what it ought to have been. My response was, let's say, nothing like the response of the congregation in Enfield, Connecticut, when Edwards first preached that sermon at the beginning of the First Great Awakening, where in Enfield, the whole congregation literally trembled and cried out and fainted with terror at the thought of God's wrath. But by contrast, when I first read that sermon, I thought Edwards' sermon was, I don't want to say funny, 
But I didn't take it seriously either because, frankly, I didn't believe it. I had grown up in Sunday school classes where just about every week we were taught not to fear God's wrath. There's nothing you need to fear about God, they would say. And God was portrayed to us as always and only kindly and amiable and always passive or accepting even of sin, never angry. You see that today in these churches that, you know, put rainbow banners on the pulpit and and basically downplay every kind of perversion as if it's okay in the eyes of God. They think that. But that's not the God of Scripture. The Bible tells us repeatedly that our God is a consuming fire. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. So there is a legitimate fear of Yahweh that comes from hearing and believing what the Bible says about the awful reality of His righteous anger against every expression of evil. You see it, for example, 2 Corinthians 5.11, "...knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men." Now, I hope by now you've found Nahum 1. I sent you to a passage in the Old Testament that you might not find so easily. Nahum chapter 1. This passage is more or less a sequel to the book of Jonah, where the theme actually is the grace of God towards an evil nation, where you remember in our study of Jonah over the years, we've come back to it several times, how God spared the city of Nineveh, despite the fact that that was the most wicked city in the world, and deserved an outpouring of his wrath, but he gave them grace instead. But that's not the end of the story. Nahum gives us the end of the story. So this is like a sequel to Jonah. And in fact, let me start with a short summary of the book of Jonah in case I know several of you have never been here when we've preached on that. So here's a thumbnail sketch of what you learn in the book of Jonah. God called Jonah to prophesy to this pagan city of Nineveh And Jonah at first tried to run the other way, not because he was afraid of the Ninevites, but because he did not want them to have any kind of warning about the judgment that was about to hit them. Jonah hated Nineveh, and he was afraid that if they heard a prophecy about the coming destruction, the Ninevites might repent enough that God would stay his hand of destruction, and that is precisely what happened. Nineveh repented, and and in fact, it was one of the most glorious and surprising, maybe the most glorious and surprising revival in the history of the human race. That whole generation turned to God in humility, and the city received a stay of execution, and Jonah wasn't happy about it. And in fact, Jesus was, though, because in Matthew 12, 41 and Luke 11, 32, Jesus more or less confirms that the repentance of Nineveh was legitimate, authentic repentance, and the people of Nineveh, at least that one generation, were truly converted because Jesus tells the people of Capernaum, Peter's hometown, in his generation, that the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jesus was telling the the people of Capernaum, you're not repenting Although I'm doing miracles and, sh- and showing you the truth and you know this, the city of Nineveh repented at, at much less than that. And then the book of Jonah actually ends with the prophet pouting and angry because he, was, he resented, the, like I said, he hated Nineveh and he wanted God to hate them too. He resented the mercy of God 
that he had showed to that generation of Ninevites. But history suggests that that revival, great as it was, glorious as it was, that revival was short-lived. The effects of that awakening did not endure past the next generation. That's often true with great revivals. It was true in the first the first great awakening in America, the very next generation, were mostly backslidden deists. So it was a short-lived revival, and a century after Jonah, Nineveh was right back at their old pagan ways of debauchery and gross evil, and this time Nahum was the prophet God raised up to announce the city's final doom, and that's what the whole book of Nahum is. Jonah records that he preached a one-sentence message, five words in the Hebrew, but Nahum devotes three full chapters to the message, and it is a prophecy of doom against Nineveh that describes in detail how the wrath of God would finally descend on that city and destroy their whole civilization with such utter demolition that it would literally be a thousand years, thousands of years, before anyone would even discover the place where Nineveh once stood. Chapter 1, verse 10, they are consumed as stubble fully dried up. Chapter 2, verse 10, she is emptied. Yes, she is emptied out and eviscerated. Chapter 3, verse 7, Nineveh is devastated. Who will console her? Verse 15, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. The Imagery of a locust, if you've ever seen a field that locusts went through, it's stripped to nothing. So in other words, nothing would be left of that city. Verses 18 and 19, your people are scattered on the mountains and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. Now, this message of Nahum's was a stunning forecast of total doom and destruction, and frankly, this time, the Ninevites didn't accept it. They didn't believe it. Their city was deemed the most secure place in the world. They had city walls seven and a half miles in circumference, and they were at least 150 feet high. That's 15 stories high, and in places more than 100 feet thick, the walls, and that city was impervious to any army. The walls were in turn surrounded by an outer rampart, and that was encircled by a moat that was 100 feet wide and 60 feet deep. And the Kozer River flowed under those walls right through the center of the city, and then it joined the Tigris River just outside of Nineveh to the southwest. And so the the city had a constant supply of fresh water, and it was believed to be impregnable. And if an army attacked, you could hole up in that city for years. And, and they had enough space to store food and, and grow food and all that, that they could resist any attack from the outside. And when Nahum issued his prophecy of total destruction, this time, 100 years after Jonah, the whole city of Nineveh just remained unmoved. They were world-renowned for their arrogance in the first place. There may have been an intensified element of carefree presumption on, uh, toward Jehovah because of the kindness that he had showed to that earlier generation of Ninevites. And so when you compare how the great-grandparents of this generation instantly repented in sackcloth and ashes after Jonah gave them only five words of prophetic warning, the way this younger generation of Ninevites spurned 
what was really a much more explicit and, and thoroughly detailed prophecy that came to them in writing from Nahum, their response is incredibly cold-hearted and, and hard-hearted. And when I say this prophecy is explicit, I mean that in every sense of the term. After describing in bloody and graphic terms the slaughter that was coming, the prophecy pictures the judgment of Nineveh like the public shaming of a brazen prostitute. Look at the start of chapter 3. Woe to the city of bloodshed, completely full of deception and pillage, her prey never departs. The sound of the whip and the sound of the rumbling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging and swords flaming and spears flashing, many slain, a mass of corpses, and there is no end to dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries. This is the city it's talking about who sells nations by her harlotries, and so it's spiritual harlotries that it's talking about, and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will uncover your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace, and I will throw detestable filth on you and display you as a wicked fool and set you up as a spectacle." And it will be that all who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. It's pretty explicit. And the whole prophecy then ends a few verses later than that on a more or less hopeless note. Not only will Nineveh be totally and utterly leveled under the fierce wrath of Almighty God, all the world will celebrate the collapse of the Assyrian capital. Chapter 3, verse 19, there is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear the report about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continuously? This city had tormented the world, and so no one was sympathetic when God destroyed them. And Nahum's prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. Chapter 1, verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete destruction of Nineveh's place and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And here's what happened in 612 BC. This is recorded in secular history as well. 612 BC, the Kosa River flooded and it caused a portion of that great wall to collapse. And an allied army consisting of the Medes and the Persians, the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, the Scythians and the Sumerians, Sumerians, I don't know how to say it. It's not Sumerians, but Sumerians with a C. And uh, they entered the city through the breach in the wall, and they utterly laid waste to everything there. Look at Nahum chapter 2, verse 6. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is melted away. Now, this attacking army was a coalition of nations, all of whom had been, at various times, sacked by the Assyrians. And so they did to the Assyrian city, what the capital city, what had been done to so many of their cities. They killed every trace of life, including the trees in Nineveh. And within five years, the ruins of Nineveh were totally abandoned. The city was forgotten. It was covered with the sands of time until the mid-1800s. Finally, some archaeologists discovered it, buried there under mounds of sand and earth, and today, the ruins of Nineveh are still being excavated between wars, you know. 
it's actually close to the modern city of Mosul in Iraq, about 200 miles north of Baghdad. So it's where a lot of, a lot of world events have happened over the past two decades. Anyway, that's our context. The prophet Nahum is prophesying a century after Jonah's time. This is the final ruin of Nineveh. It's truly eminent this time. And Nahum's prophecy is delivered, as I said, in written form. So we have the full thing here in, in verbatim form. Every word that he said from start to finish, it is a, a prophecy of doom against the enemies of God with a few but very few words of comfort for the people of God. In fact, the one central purpose and theme of this book of Nineveh, or sorry, of Nahum, is to warn about the wrath to come on the city of Nineveh. The only legitimate response to a prophecy like this is profound fear of God. And that is precisely what Scripture means when it says repeatedly that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. God's wrath ought to inspire a holy terror in our hearts. You sometimes hear, well, the fear of God doesn't really mean fear. Yeah, it kind of does. And Scripture even uses the word terror in a few places. It's a fear that's not craven fear, but it's the fear that's the beginning of wisdom. Because if it's not the foundation of your understanding of God's character, that He is awesome and holy, and He hates sin and will punish it, and if that doesn't inspire fear in you, then you don't truly understand God at all. But without that fear, you can't ever really see the richness of God's glory anyway. You'll never grasp the gravity of God's law. You can't comprehend or believe the horrors of hell. And you can't truly begin to cherish or properly esteem the, the divine grace that saves believers from the wrath of God. That's what we are saved from. Without a proper fear of God's wrath, you're merely presuming on the grace of God. And that very brand of arrogant presumption was the final nail in the coffin of the Ninevites. Listen as I read the first nine verses. These are the verses we're going to focus on. Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against his adversaries, and he keeps his anger for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel languish. The blossoms of Lebanon languish. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are torn down by him. Yahweh is good, a strong defense in the day of distress, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete destruction of its place and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against Yahweh, he will make a complete destruction of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Now, every word of that passage is meant to inspire sinners to fear 
the outpouring of God's wrath. And even the phrases that may, at first glance, seem to be words of comfort, in context, it it becomes clear that they're not. Verse 3, Yahweh is slow to anger. That is not meant to assure the Ninevites that you can take your time and rest in, in the knowledge of God's patience. That is meant to warn them that although they have so far escaped the final judgment because of God's extreme forbearance, the Lord has not forgotten and He will not overlook their transgressions. The fact that He often delays His judgments doesn't mean that He overlooks our sins. And as long as the sinner remains unrepentant, he is merely accumulating greater condemnation, filling the storehouse of righteous retribution against that terrible day when God's wrath is finally unleashed. In the words of Romans 2, verses 4 and 5, Do do you presume this, O man, who passes judgment on those who practice such things and does the same? Do you presume that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And in fact, look at the rest of Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. Yes, Yahweh is slow to anger, but... He is great in power, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Not one sin will He overlook. And look at what precedes that that statement about the Lord's patience. Verse 2, A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against His adversaries. Three times He's avenging. You know, people love to quote 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 is likewise inspired scripture, and, and God here is telling us what He is like. And He is not merely love without any hint of sternness or displeasure. He is also avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on His adversaries. And, and while we might not like to hear that truth as much as the other, The wrath of God is a truth that we neglect or disavow at our own eternal peril. This is what makes the wrath of God such a difficult topic to preach about or to hear about and to absorb into our thinking. Because for the most part, God's wrath is not something that we would ever celebrate or glory in. It's a truth that rightfully instead causes fear and trembling. And so we properly recoil from it in horror. It's not something we're naturally inclined to revel in, nor should we be. But everyone's life would be instantly more comfortable if we never had to think about hell. But that's not what Scripture encourages us to do. And yet sometimes, sometimes when a Hitler is defeated or an Osama bin Laden is finally silenced, we are grateful, aren't we? And we glorify God even for His wrath for His righteous retribution against sin, and and for the eternal justice that divine wrath will ultimately accomplish when God finally consigns evil itself, along with all evildoers, consigns them to the bottomless pit forever. We will celebrate that. We're glad that there's retribution for sin, 
as long as we perceive ourselves to be the victims of sin. Because in our hearts, we know what true justice demands. And furthermore, it's right and good that we should think deeply and seriously about the wrath of God. It's an exercise that actually has several sanctifying benefits. And in fact, this passage reminds me of five very practical lessons we learn when we ponder the enormity of God's wrath. Here are five sanctifying truths that are reinforced and made more vivid in our hearts and minds whenever we seriously seek to come to grips with the reality of God's righteous wrath against sin. So are you ready to write? Take these down, five reasons that we should meditate on God's wrath. There are five of them here. Number one, it teaches us how evil sin is. And in fact, the context and the whole reason for this severe prophecy of judgment against Nineveh lies in the extreme wickedness of the Ninevites. That is stressed in verses 8 and 9. They have made themselves God's adversaries, verse 8, and like all evil beings, they love darkness rather than light. And so when they retreat, it's into a place of darkness. But, verse 8, God pursues them even there. Verse 9 says, they devise evil schemes against Yahweh. And at the, at the end of the verse says, distress will not rise up twice. That reflects the fact that if God doesn't destroy them, they'll simply cause trouble again and again. But the trouble they cause is not merely some harmless, playful mischief. They drink evil like drunkards, like entangling thorns that render the ground useless for any good cause. They defile and destroy whatever they touch. So their distress will not rise up twice, which means when God destroys them, it's going to be final. Verse 11 says, from you has gone forth one who devised evil against Yahweh, a vile counselor. And that almost certainly speaks of the king of Assyria, who is either Sennacherib, who was notoriously evil, or perhaps one of his successors. Sennacherib's palace dominated the city of Nineveh. And Sennacherib is one of the most vile characters in the Old Testament, actually. He sent his armies to attack Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, and Sennacherib, you know, was ultimately murdered by his own sons who ascended the throne. And then his offspring became worse and worse with each successive generation. And that expression in verse 11, a vile counselor, literally means a, a counselor of Belial, Satan. So the clear implication is that whatever the, whoever this person refers to, was deliberately and consciously in league with the devil. And as you might expect, under the influence of a Satan-possessed counselor like this, the evil of Nineveh as a city was legendary. It was a cruel, cold-blooded, openly sadistic culture. We talked about this when we went through Jonah, and it really, frankly, is nauseating if you discuss it, if you describe it in detail. But the Ninevites were superstitious and savage and utterly perverse. In their culture, homosexuality and bestiality were common, but their best-known characteristic and, and the, the one evil that they were most feared and universally despised for was their proclivity to war crimes. 
They, were not, they not only waged war against their neighbors, they terrorized them in the most grotesque and debauched fashion. They would build massive pyramids with the severed heads of their victims, and, and they would pose dead bodies in macabre ways. They devised methods of torture that were so evil, it would be inappropriate for me to describe them. And the Assyrian king in Nahum's time was most likely Ashurbanipal, the grandson of Sennacherib. There's a picture of Ashurbanipal on a Assyrian monument that illustrates what he did to the ruler of one of the nations he defeated. He pierced the, the rival ruler's jaw with a dagger. He put a dog chain through the wound and then made the defended king live naked in a dog kennel until he died. And that's far from the worst of the Assyrian atrocities. They favored, import, they, they, they favored forms of impalement, and most of their tortures had also overtones of gross sexual perversions. To put it plainly, they simply took delight in the most degrading and shameful and inhuman kinds of wickedness and torture. They loved that stuff. Now, the truth is, all sin has at its root that same kind of evil delight. You know, even white lies, even the small things we do wrong, the secret thoughts you entertain, which no one else besides you and God even know anything about, every supposed misdemeanor, as well as the sins that we think of as trivial, they all have that same lust for wickedness as an underlying motive, and, and also there's an infinite offense against God because He is infinitely holy, and to besmirch His holiness, even in the tiniest way, is an infinite offense against Him. And so all of that is wrapped up even in the smallest sins that we commit. I mean, con consider this. Adam's original sin was practically the most innocent, or let's say insignificant, infraction you could possibly devise. You know, he tasted a piece of the fruit that God told him not to eat, and, and yet that seemingly small offense unleashed a world of evil from which you and I still suffer every day. It wasn't a small thing, and the fruits of it prove that. Every evil in the world today finds its roots in the rebellion, Adam began with that one act of disobedience. So there's no such thing as a small sin. Even the simplest, most paltry act of disobedience is high rebellion against the infinite holiness of God. And therefore, all of our sins are worthy of infinite punishment. And that fact makes the truly abominable sins just inconceivably wicked, doesn't it? You can't begin to comprehend the extreme evil that's wrapped up in humanity's rebellion against God until you see what God Himself thinks of it. And the clearest expression of God's perspective on our sin is seen in the outpouring of His wrath. So ponder the biblical descriptions of divine wrath and bear in mind as you think about the severity of eternal punishment that everything God does is perfectly just and right. Remember, as you consider the unending pain of eternal torment, that every ounce of retribution God gives to sinners is richly and fully deserved by them, and once you understand that, only then do you begin to understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. 
And this is where those who deny the reality of hell fall short in their logic. They reason that if God is good, He couldn't possibly send anyone to hell. How could a God who is truly loving and gracious ever heap eternal torment on the heads of His own creatures? I mean, if God is truly loving, then there can't be any such thing as hell, right? That's how people think. And even, even evangelicals do, today don't seem to have an answer to that question. In recent years, evangelicals have seemed embarrassed and uncertain whenever, you know, it brings up, somebody brings up the subject of hell. Well, should we take the biblical warnings about hell seriously or not? One famous book on the subject put the question this way, and I'm quoting, have billions of people been created only to spend eternity in conscious punishment and torment, suffering infinitely for the finite sins they committed in the few years they spent on earth? Unquote. That, by the way, is from Rob Bell's best-selling book, uh, which was an attack on the doctrine of eternal punishment. A horrible little book, badly titled, Love Wins. In fact, notice his presupposition. He thinks a sin against God is a finite evil. It's not. And the, in fact, think about it. The gravity of any wrong is measured by the authority and the dignity of the one against whom the wrong is committed. You can slap me in the face and somebody might rebuke you, but you slap the President of the United States in the face and you're probably going to go to prison. Sin against the infinite righteousness and holiness of Almighty God and an eternity of suffering in hell won't be enough to pay for your sin in, in full. There's no such thing as a finite sin against God. That's a ridiculous expression. But listen again to Rob Bell. Rob Bell, by the way, is a former pastor from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was famous 20 years ago, not so well known now, but he comes from an evangelical background. He admits he does not believe in the authority of Scripture. He's aligned himself with Oprah Winfrey, who doesn't like the idea of hell very much either. But he doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture, and I think it's because he hates the idea of divine righteousness. Here's what he wrote in his book, quote, It's important that we be honest about the fact that some stories are better than others. Telling a story in which Billions of people spend forever somewhere in the universe trapped in a black hole of endless torment and misery with no way out. That's not a very good story. Telling a story about a God who inflicts unrelenting punishment on people because they didn't do or say or believe the correct things in a brief window of time called life, that's not a very good story. And then Bell goes on to say that a story where sins are not punished and everybody gets to go to heaven that's a better story, he says. Really? But notice again his faulty presupposition. He believes that sin is a finite, momentary, temporal matter. It's merely a petty thing. It's just a momentary lapse. It's, it's nothing of any eternal consequence. And he believes that people are basically good and innocent and worthy of forgiveness for the sins they commit. The truth is, only someone who utterly lacks spiritual understanding or, or who flatly refuses to believe what Scripture says about how evil sin is, only someone like that could possibly make such a foolish statement. If we believe in the authority of Scripture, we must submit to its teaching 
that all sin is exceedingly sinful, and that there's enough evil, even in the smallest of sins, to damn the entire universe forever. Because that is exactly what happened. Furthermore, if we submit our minds and hearts and value judgments to the authority of Scripture, we are obliged to confess that God is perfectly just, and no matter what it might seem like to our fallen, corrupt sense of right and wrong, what He does is right, all of it. And that brings up a second point. First, the biblical description of God's wrath teaches us how evil sin is. Now, second, it reminds us how glorious God is. It reminds us how glorious God is. It's interesting to me that Scripture never shies away from declaring God's wrath in plain language and upholding His hatred for sin as a demonstration of His glory. It's not like the dark side of God. This is a demonstration of His glory. Take a look at verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging His adversaries, and He keeps His anger for His enemies. So, is God a vengeful God? This text says emphatically, He is, and the rest of Scripture affirms it. Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And in fact, God's judgment is impeccably thorough and glorious, and that's the reason that you and I are not supposed to be vengeful. Romans 12, 19 again, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Scripture never suggests that there's anything wrong with vengeance against evildoers, only that we should leave business like that to God, because only He can do it perfectly and completely, and He will do so. Look at Nahum 1 verse 3 again, Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34 verse 7 likewise says, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So this is a repetition from Moses that Nahum includes in this prophecy. And when I hear some spiritual wimp suggest that if God were truly good, He would never take the role of an avenging judge or an angry executioner, you know the idea that God is like a cuddly bunny plush toy or, or like a benign grandmother. When I hear that kind of nonsense, I have to admit that I always feel some sympathy and appreciation for the Boanerges brothers, you know? At least they understood that God is not a Gumby action figure that you can shape any way you want. In the words of Paul, Romans eleven twenty two, Behold then both the kindness and severity of God. Romans 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. And Hebrews 10, 31 again, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Scripture, again, is full of statements like those from the start to the end. Don't buy the lie of people who suggest that, you know, the wrath of God is an Old Testament truth only, and the New Testament presents to us a milder perspective about God. Because the truth is, no book in all of Scripture has more to say about the wrath of God than the book of Revelation. 
And it tells us that Christ's return will signal an outpouring of God's wrath such as the world has never seen before. And furthermore, God's wrath is an expression of His glory as much as His loving kindness is. Psalm 97 is a whole psalm that celebrates the glory of God's wrath. Psalm 97, Yahweh reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of Yahweh, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast of idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Yahweh. For you are Yahweh, most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. Hate evil, you who love Yahweh, who keeps the souls of His holy ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in Yahweh, you righteous ones, and give thanks for the remembrance of His holy name. So I hope you caught the tenor of that psalm. It's saying that God's wrath is one of the ways He displays His glory and the breathtaking severity and the power of His wrath ought to remind us that He is glorious. Remember when God told Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20, you can't see my face for no man can see me and live. He was talking about the glow of His glory that would be fatal to a sinful human. Even a pale reflection of God's glory on the face of Moses was so frightening to the Israelites that Moses put a veil on his face for their sakes because it was scary. The wrath of God reminds us of that terrifying aspect of the divine glory. God's wrath is, is a righteous expression of His omnipotent power. And Nahum makes that point in verses 3 through 6. In whirlwind and storm is His way, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel languish. The blossoms of Lebanon languish. Mountains quake because of Him, and the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it, who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are torn down by Him. And before we get away from this concept of divine glory, we need to remember that God's wrath is also an expression of His goodness. You shouldn't think of God's wrath again. It's, it's not the dark side of His character. He doesn't have a dark side to His character. He's pure light in whom there is no darkness at all. It's an expression of His goodness. Verse 7, Yahweh is good, a strong defense in the day of distress, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. So God's hatred of evil and His anger at evildoers, that's simply the necessary corollary of His love for righteousness. You know, we have a hard time with that concept because our minds are fallen, and even as believers, we, we can't, we're not totally rid of the remnants of our fleshly love for sin, but 
in our glorified state, when we are finally made fit for heaven and totally freed from even the presence of sin, we will celebrate the wrath of God that destroys evil as much as we adore every other aspect of God's glory. You see that in Revelation 6, verse 10, in the cry of the martyrs who plead to God to avenge their deaths, and they say, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And frankly, we occasionally do have a taste of, of that feeling here on earth in the relief or the vindication that we feel when someone like a Hitler or Osama bin Laden is killed, or, or when some depraved serial killer is finally brought to justice. We rejoice. Heaven will let us enjoy God's justice without any taint of sinful or selfish attitudes, and we will rejoice in the destruction of evil and the, and the perfect equity of the recompense that God deals out to evildoers. It's hard to envision that for us now, but in our glorified minds, that will make perfect sense. And so first, God's wrath teaches us how evil sin is. Second, it reminds us how glorious God is. Now third, it shows us how serious the law is. And we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. You can see the point expressed in that opening phrase of verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. And that simply echoes the opening words of the law. Going all the way back to Exodus 20, verse 5, God Himself says, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. So God, as both lawgiver and judge, demands perfect obedience, because He Himself would be unrighteous if He approved a lower standard. And therefore, James 2.10 Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. When the law was given, Deuteronomy 27 prescribed that the, the Levites should declare to all the men of Israel with a loud voice a series of 12 curses, and the people of Israel were to respond to each curse with a solemn amen. And it culminates in Deuteronomy 27:26. Cursed is he who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them. And the people shall say, Amen. So the frequent, vivid descriptions of God's wrath in Scripture remind us that it is a solemn and terrible thing to violate God's law, especially when a believer abuses the grace of God by purposely turning grace into an occasion for the indulgence of fleshly sins. Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. In other words, God's moral precepts are serious, and the wrath of God reminds us how serious reading on in Hebrews 10, verses 28 and 29, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So, if you're following, first, God's wrath teaches us how evil sin is. Second, it reminds us how glorious God is. 
Third, it shows us how serious the law is. Now, fourth, it warns us how terrible hell is. And the imagery and the language of hell runs all through this opening passage in Nahum's prophecy. I don't know if you noticed when I read it, but look at it. Verse 6, his wrath is poured out like fire. Verse 8, he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Verse 2, you have wrath and vengeance against God's enemies. And verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? So you got all the elements of hell there. And, you know, the darkness, the fire, the wrath of God. And, and as we are astonished and overwhelmed by the fury of God's vengeance in a description like this, we need to bear in mind that Jesus described hell in these very same terms, and then he stressed that the torments of hell are unending. Whenever we observe or experience the earthly hardship that's associated with divine chastening or God's judgment against evil, it would be good for us to remember that earthly judgments may be tempered with grace, but hell represents the miseries of divine vengeance in its full, eternal, relentless, undiluted form. At the end of Matthew 25, where Jesus describes the judgment of self-righteous religious people who thought you know, that their own deeds would justify them, he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And what you have to notice is that the very same word for eternal is used twice in that text. So the punishment of the wicked is expressly said to be eternal in the same sense that heaven is eternal for those who are redeemed. And that gets us to my fifth point. One, God's wrath teaches us how evil sin is. Two, it reminds us how glorious God is. Three, it shows us how serious the law is. Number four, it shows us how terrible, it warns us how terrible hell is. And now finally, it tells us how amazing grace is. I said at the start that Nahum's prophecy is virtually all an oracle of doom and destruction with very few words of comfort. But God does have His eye on His people, and that becomes obvious at certain points when His grace does shine through sometimes in just a small glimmer, but His grace shines through even as He expresses His wrath. For example, verse 7, Yahweh is good, a strong defense in a day of distress, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. And then in verse 12, He speaks directly to His own people who had suffered terrible things at the hands of the Assyrians. You know, Jonah's contempt for Nineveh and his wish to see them destroyed that was representative of national Israel's whole attitude towards the Assyrians. That wasn't just Jonah's personal opinion. They all felt that way. And it had been more than 100 years since Jonah's time when God showed mercy to Nineveh during a time when he was, God was threatening his own people with judgment. And that judgment actually did come at the hands of Assyria. So the people of God are begging for relief. And Yahweh turns to them in verse 12 and says... Thus says Yahweh, though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will break your bands apart. That's a promise to God's people against the Assyrians. God's mercy shines through even in his wrath. And in fact, 
His, his wrath, as it's expressed to these evildoers, is an expression of his tenderness and care for his own people. And you know what? If you really understood how evil sin is, how glorious and perfectly holy God is, how serious the threats of the law are, how terrible yet thoroughly just hell is, then, then you'll see the issues of justice and mercy and sin and redemption and light and darkness and heaven and hell, you'll look at all those issues in a totally different way. And you will understand why we sing amazing grace. Grace is amazing. You know, what's hard to understand is not why God sends sinners to hell. That actually makes perfect sense when you consider this, the sinfulness of sin, the the out-and-out out evil of every act of disobedience against God. But what's rationally and spiritually incomprehensible is why God would redeem any sinner. And, and what's even more amazing is that He would purchase redemption for sinners at such a great cost that He sacrificed His own Son to pay for the sins of those who trust Him. And once you grasp the reality of divine wrath, the love and grace of God become truly amazing. God, this holy God of perfect righteousness, who will by no means allow sin to go unpunished, this God who promises vengeance in the form of eternal punishment against all who violate His law, this God who swears to execute the most thorough, ultimate vengeance against all evildoers, this same God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Yahweh made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the gospel message. And when you see it clearly in light of the truth of God's wrath, and you can't really understand it any other way, you have to understand God's wrath before you can really understand the gospel message. But once you understand that, the grace that accomplishes the salvation of all who trust Christ, that grace becomes truly amazing. And that, I think, is the greatest lesson the wrath of God teaches us. This is why I'm so eager for people to understand and embrace what the Bible teaches about God's wrath and His righteousness, not because there's some perverse delight to be found in the doom of the reprobate or the torments of hell, but because the severity of God against sin makes His mercy and His great grace shine so much more brightly. In fact, you can't appreciate the significance of divine grace without a biblical grasp of the truth about divine wrath. Well, what is grace if there's no wrath? And the more you see and learn to fear the wrath of God, the more thankful you will be for the grace of God the more dependent you will be on that grace, and the more you'll learn to rely on the power of that grace to conform you to the likeness of Christ. Grace supplies forgiveness and a right standing with God to sinners who actually don't deserve anything but His wrath, and that's all of us. But grace was made possible by God Himself, who gave His Son to die, to suffer His wrath in our place, and to bear the full brunt of the divine chastisement that we deserve. If the magnitude of that grace 
doesn't leave you speechless in holy wonder, then you still haven't thought deeply enough about the righteousness and wrath of our holy God. And my plea to you is to consider it seriously before it's too late. Let's pray. Lord, when we read what Your Word says about Your wrath against sin, it does cause us to tremble. Deepen that fear. That fear is the very foundation of spiritual wisdom. And Your Word says perfect love casts out the fear that has to do with punishment. But give us a holy reverence that we might never forget the terror of Your holy wrath, but that that might constantly move us and motivate us to be grateful for Your unspeakable grace towards us. Make us utterly dependent on that grace as we seek to live for Christ in a fallen world. And may our knowledge of Your wrath against sin move us each to be clear and constant heralds of the gospel. Knowing the terror of the Lord, may we persuade others, imploring men and women for Christ's sake to be reconciled to God, We pray in the name of our Savior and for His glory. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.